0: Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Matt Aldridge, a senior at the University of Georgia, and for today's episode, I'm excited to share an interview with Dr. Jay Cost. Dr. Cost focuses on the American founding, civic virtues, and American constitutionalism. His most recent book is James Madison, America's First Politician. Today, I'm excited to speak with Professor Kost on Madison, American Constitutional Theory during the founding, and what lessons we can take away for modern American political life. We hope you enjoy today's episode. If you do, be sure to give us a rating to help others find the podcast and to subscribe to the Campus Exchange so that you can be the first to know when we release a new episode. With that, here's my conversation with Professor Cost. Start off a bit. Why don't you tell us why you think Madison was important to his era, and then why this importance continues to have some kind of relevance now to our present political
1: problems? Yeah, well, Well. first of all, thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to talk to you. I think James Madison is one of those founding fathers who, I, I think until recently, had kind of been overlooked. I mean, it's it's such a it's an era full of so many legendary political figures that it's it's easy to get lost in the shuffle when you have somebody like Thomas Jefferson or somebody like George Washington, even somebody like John Adams, who all have these very distinct claims to credit. Madison doesn't have anything like that. So Madison can't claim to have won the American Revolution, right, in the his country like Washington. He can't claim to have written the Declaration of Independence. He is known as the father of the Constitution. That's a name that was sort of ascribed to him back in the 1820s, um, and it just kind of stuck. Even though I'd, Madison himself would never have claimed paternity of the Constitution, and the Constitution really bears the stamp of a lot of other people. So Madison's exact role in the founding is a little imprecise, difficult to pin down. Which, as a as a writer, is perfect opportunity for me because that's what I try to do in the book and try to identify what Madison. What what does Madison bring us? If 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 Jefferson is the author of American liberty, the architect of American liberty is one book with subtitle one book. I make the argument in my book that James Madison was the inventor of a style of politics that we today would consider to be distinctly American. So what do I mean by that? Well, I I mean it in a couple of senses that Madison had a vision of politics that is outlined in some respects in Federalist 10, Federalist 51, some of his other early writings, where the goal of politics is supposed to achieve neutral justice between factions in society, so Madison in Federalist Ten actually analogizes the political process to that of courtroom, where different factions come and they expect to get fair treatment, and they, um, you know, sort of similar to how they would be, you know, treated in a courtroom. So that that's one way to look at it. But I, I want to suggest there's more to it than that. That Madison thought that politics itself, if it was well designed, could produce the kind of justice that society needs. And that sort of gets the core problem of government, which is that we human beings are inherently incapable of spontaneously producing justice on our own, which is essential for civil societies. This is why we form government. We form government to secure the justice that we can't provide ourselves. But government itself is made up of human beings, so it's susceptible to the same problems and it's liable to corruption. And Madison believed that the way to avoid that kind of corruption, or at least to mitigate its bad effects, was well-organized politics. The Madisonian vision was for a republic where factions were so diverse and so numerous that no single group could dominate the political process. And so everybody would have to come together and barter and bargain with each other and reach some kind of compromise. And in the process of bargaining and compromising, common ground would be found something that everybody could live with reasonably, reasonably well. And in that sort of mutual common ground is where you would get justice and you would get defense of the public interest. So that's sort of Madison's constitutional theory, which I think is a distinctly American idea of how politics is supposed to function. The subtitle of my book is um, James Madison, America's First Politician. And one of the art ideas that i sort of argue for in the book is that madison is not simply the architect of this style of politics but that his career itself exhibits what he thinks a politician should behave like within uh such a system so you see madison through the course of his political career searching for looking for common ground between factions and endeavoring to to sort of forge compromises and also to generate not just compromise for its own sake. So Madison is not some kind of like squishy moderate per se, but more like compromises that the entire country can live with that are good for the country. You see him do this time and time again. It's a really, I think, extraordinary and underappreciated fact of his political career, including his presidency, which I don't think has been given the credit that it deserves. I think Madison's presidency is a lot better than it's been remembered. And so that's, you know, when when I call Madison in the subtitle of the book, I call him James Madison, America's first politician. That's the sense in which I mean, it. it's not just that he designed a system of politics but also behaved and operated within that system in a way that there's a lot for us to learn from it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I like this phrase that you're turning to a lot, um, securing justice. It's one of the conditions for constitutional government that's listed in the preamble and consistent with a lot of Madison's other ideas about how constitutional structure should be ordered insofar as to ensure that various competing groups are participating in a way that's conducive <coughs> to a republican style government. Right. We see this different we see multiple different conceptions of a republican style government cropping up at around the same time that Madison is proposing a lot of these ideas. Maybe in distinction from Madison's idea in Federalist 51 where ambition counteracts ambition we have a much different idea that's lauded by jefferson on the on the french side where they're you know not necessarily trying to balance factions they're trying to create some universal essence of citizenship under liberte Equality, fraternity. and that's really not what madison how madison is viewing the constitutional structure that he's hoping the american people adopt after abandoning the articles of confederation looking <clears> at <throat> it more from a perspective of how does human nature cause problems and then how do we solve those problems as opposed to how do we mold people into this perfect political
1: body that we want them to be? So Madison was initially, I mean, even even into the later stages of the French Revolution, um, was in favor of the French Revolution. He wasn't opposed to it. I mean, by the time we get into 1793, The French Revolution has become a political problem in America, and particularly the bad behavior of French politicians towards the United States is a huge headache for Madison and Jefferson, because they're seen as the pro-French faction. But I do, I agree in in this sort of sense that I I think Jefferson had really, if we think about sort of how do we secure justice and solutions of that, I, I think Jefferson had enormous faith in the capacity for an educated, rational citizenry to behave in the best interests of the community. So Jefferson was simultaneously on the, he wasn't a small D Democrat, but he was relative to most of his contemporaries. So like for instance, Jefferson favored, you know, Revisiting constitutional structures every generation, he was opposed to debts that lasted longer than a generation. Um, he didn't like the idea of the people being bound or enjoined by previous generations. He believed in the sovereignty of the people. You know, Jefferson also was a hearty advocate of public education, at least on the local level, and certainly on on the state level, and also you know, why he founded the University of Virginia. And this sort of fits together in Jefferson's ideal vision of an agrarian republic where intelligent, independent farmers can safely govern themselves. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a guy like Alexander Hamilton, who his faith was not in the masses, at least to the same extent Jefferson was, but Hamilton had much greater faith in the elites, particularly the commercial elites, I think Hamilton had enormous faith in. Madison is different from both of them, I would say, in the sense that Madison doesn't have faith in anybody. There's no group of people where he's going to reposit his trust um, to safeguard constitutional government. His trust, in, on the other hand, is actually really interesting because it's sort of based on a predictable distrust almost, where he expects groups to predictively, predictably favor themselves over the interest of the whole political community. And so what he sets out to do then with his system of government is to um, set them against one another with the thinking that if you know, one group is looking for its own advantage, then it will be checked by another group. But if there's some proposal that all groups can agree to, well, there's a chance that one's a pretty good proposal. So it's an interesting twist. And and I think it reflects in many respects the education that Madison had. He, he, He went to the College of New Jersey, which is today known as Princeton and which was a a calvin it was presbyterian school and and it took its presbyterianism very seriously and so madison from a very early age um really sort of imbibes this kind of calvinism where a very skeptical view of human nature and human man's capacity for goodness and so madison is dealing he has a very kind of pessimistic view of human nature at least more so than than Jefferson. And and I I think also weirdly more than Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton didn't trust the masses, but Madison doesn't really trust the elites either. So it's an interesting political theory in that it's built a sort of a a system of justice built around the expectation that individuals will be pursuing injustice for themselves. It's a very, very interesting system. And it it makes Madison just, even if he wasn't so consequential a statesman, it would make him just an interesting political thinker. For sure. And I think that
0: contextually looking at what early America looked like during the founding period, Madison was probably operating under the assumption, which probably could be extended till today as well, that in pursuing injustice and practicing politics, individuals would be pursuing their rational self-interest. So we have, you know, the first kind of lines of sectionalism, where the South is uh, more agriculturally focused, where the North is beginning to industrialize slowly uh, towards the uh, beginning of, of the American Republic after the Constitution is enacted, in, which eventually leads to all kinds of divisions down the road. But Madison's not viewing people or viewing the polity as attempting to choose political aims through, you know, a very defined political ideology, he's viewing people through uh, pursuing the rational self-interest in pursuing their political aims. Do you agree with that?
1: I I would, and I I think he was, you know, very concerned about the, I mean, he wasn't the only one, but there was a lot of reasons to suspect that the states or regions of the country pursuing their own interests were gonna end up leading to disunion. And and this is, this was a problem. And there were multiple ways in which this was a problem. I mean, one example would be um, in 1785, 1786, uh, the Spanish and the Americans are negotiating a treaty of like a commercial alliance. And um, John Jay is the uh, minister who's negotiating the treaty with this Spanish ambassador named Gardaqui. And the Gardaqui Treaty, as it comes out, is well, what, what the demand? What one thing that the South wants is they want free navigation of the Mississippi River to New Orleans. And the New, Mississippi River was under Spanish control at this point, and the Spanish Gardaqui doesn't want to give this to him, uh, and and sort of lays it down like absolutely not. So Jay goes back to the Continental Congress, and he asks for permission to drop this request, and the vote is to give Jay permission to drop the request. I think it, the vote was like seven to six on strictly regional lines, where the Eastern states, particularly New England, what do they care about the Mississippi River? Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York don't care about the Mississippi River either. But Virginia cares about the Mississippi River and Kentucky cares, well, Kentucky's not a state, but Kentucky's part of Virginia. But you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, they all care about the mississippi river um and so that's a one example and there are so many examples from the 1780s of factions within or among the states leading to disregard for each other and there was a real worry among many of the founders that if the government was not redesigned then there would be disunion and this was even You know, you'd think that the war was over, the peace had been signed in 1783, the peace was remarkably favorable to the Americans. And yet there's all these rivalries, a lot of them have to do with commerce, that are starting to pop up between between the states. And and this is one of the this is one of the motivations of Madison's system of government, where he believed that. You know, if the states are of the opinion that they will not receive justice from the central government from the Congress, then they will know they won't stay around in perpetuity, right? Like, yes, the country had gone to the war together and the bonds of union were forged during the war and blah, 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 all that good stuff. But that's only gonna last so long. Sooner or later, if the states believe, if the people believe that they're not getting justice from the central government, they're not going to be part of the United States of America anymore. And so Madison is really intent. One of the reasons why he wants to create a system where the factions of society, they could be economic factions, regional factions, social factions, religious factions. But if everybody believes that when they deal with the federal government, they're treated in a fit reasonably fair manner then that will engender the kind of loyalty that is so necessary to maintain the union and that was something you know that it's easy to take for granted today the union of the states today but you know 1784 1785 it was looking pretty dicey for a while there for sure
0: now we're moving toward a le- moving kind of away from constitutional structure and more to the aspect of practicing politics which motivates Madison's conception of how constitutional structure should be formed. Madison, you know, detests faction, detests the idea of political parties. And then after the Constitution is enacted, after Washington's presidency, you see Madison becoming one of, first you would call the major party leaders along the Mm -hmm. side, where he eventually... Follows this career into the, into the White House as, as fourth president. How do we make sense of Madison's openly visceral partisan political activity that he practices with his view of securing justice at the level of constitutional structure? It seems like there might be a little bit of a, a contradiction there in how Madison's behaving at those two levels of political practice.
1: Yeah, I, I believe that the, con, the, the, uh, the contradiction is a consequence of a faulty public memory that has been, that's a consequence of imprecise understanding of where Madison was coming from, and also, frankly, I think an effort, particularly in the early 20th century, to identify Madison and Jefferson's political party with the modern Democratic Party. And we see this even, you can see this in, in textbooks now, you know, you'll see the phrase, the Democratic-Republican Party. That is not what they called themselves. That is not how they understood themselves. They would not never, at least Madison and Jefferson, would never have used the word democratic, particularly not in the 1790s, because democratic societies had sprung up and had been sort of, um, you know, there were worries, at least among the Federalists, that they were, you know, bastions of... Jacobinism. And the Republican, Madison and Jefferson would not want to open themselves up as a target to Federalists. So there, there's been a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and I, I try to, in the book, to clarify it. And it, it, it's really, to understand what Madison is doing, he left us a number of writings from the period. Because he, forming a political party, which he helps do, he then writes a series of essays for the National Gazette which was the first uh, newspaper created for a partisan purpose, basically laying out what his thinking is. These just get overlooked. I'm not sure why, but they've been overlooked. But Madison, so Madison did not see his political party as we today view the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as collections of factions, That's not how they saw it. And it's important that Madison calls his party the Republican Party. And now that name today is fraught with factionalism because one of our modern parties is named the Republican Party. But in 1792, when Madison is writing these essays, he has a very specific idea behind that word. And the idea is his style of politics, right? A a style of politics where the people themselves rule and govern themselves that is what republican government meant to him is that ultimately the authority of government is vested in the people madison juxtaposes that with what we today call the federalist party but in his in his partisan in his writings madison calls them the anti-republican party madison believed primarily hamilton and a series of other Um, elites in government were basically endeavoring to use the public finance architecture of the government that Hamilton had created as a patronage machine, basically, where they were trying, like using the bank and the government debt to basically buy votes to secure power for themselves within the government, independent of the people. And so Madison's party is a party in opposition to this. It's a party not of a particular set of, well, we want this and this, these proposals. It's a party that was self-consciously designed to sort of like sound the alarm to the people that this group of elites, you know, would be monarchists, which is what they believe they were, Madison and Jefferson. We're trying to destroy the Republican character of the government. So that when, the, when they use the phrase Republican Party, that's the sense in which they mean it. So the way to almost think of the Republican Party as they understood it was similar to, you know, a wartime political coalition where all the major factions come together. There's one essay where Madison says, well, we need to banish all distinctions that exist between us of class and region and economic employment and religion, because we all have this shared threat against these elites, right? Madison is not the founder of a political party, really, in the sense that we think of it today. That founder would probably be more Van Buren. And the sort of evidence of this is that after the Federalists are defeated in 1800, Madison and Jefferson do not maintain the discipline of the party of the republican the republican party basically kind of falls apart i mean not on a popular electoral level but that party apparatus that gets created basically falls apart and, and they were very self-conscious madison and jefferson and also monroe who follows madison in the presidency of peeling off the Federalist moderate federalists they believe were basically not their opponents, people who just maybe were a little more amenable to Hamilton, but, you know, sort of distinguishing what they call, what, what we today remember as the high Federalist. People like Hamilton or like Rufus King or, you know, Washington's cabinet at the end of his second term, Adams' cabinet, people like Timothy Pickering as high Federalists who they believe really wanted to destroy constitutional government. And, and look, you see this, like you look at like Jefferson's election in 1804, you know, Jefferson wins the state of Massachusetts, which had been a bastion of federalism. And by the by, Monroe's reelection in 1820, the Federalists aren't even running a candidate. The Republicans had done such a good job of basically fusing their coalition with the bulk of federalism. So it's not, it, it seems like it's a contradiction for Madison to have become a leader of a party. But the contradictions resolve themselves when we see the situation, the political context of the moment, the way Madison saw it. And it's it's a very unique and different way of looking at partisan party politics than what we today take it to be.
0: Sure, I think that's a very useful way to look at it, and I think that maybe the idea that you brought up of party and opposition uh, in terms of how Madison and Jefferson are seeing their political organizing activity might become something that becomes more important if we fast forward a bit. Van Buren is someone who is essential in forming, uh, you know, modern partisan political organizing in the United States. Parties become a much bigger deal after this, you know federalist, anti-federalist time period. And if we look at our modern political divide today, modern partisan political composition today, going back to an earlier idea that we talked about in terms of uh, individuals seeking rational self-interest, it would seem that since the late 20th century, maybe mid to late 20th century, rational self-interest has become fused with political ideology as something that is one and the same, in the sense that both parties become parties in opposition to one another because of how this transformation of ideology and partisan politics affects both of them. What does that mean? Maybe care to either agree or disagree with that characterization, and then if so, what does that mean for how politics should operate in a constitutional republic like the one that Madison envisioned?
1: Yeah, um, I... I think I agree. I I generally agree with that. I mean, I think in the mid 20th century, we had ideologically weak parties. I mean, you can look at sort of the election of 1960 between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, and there's not really a dime's worth of difference between the two candidates on either domestic or international fronts. Um, I think over the last 50, 60 years, we certainly have become more ideologically diverse. And so the Republican party has become distinctly conservative and the Democratic party has become distinctly liberal. Whereas, you know, before there was a general sort of hazy acceptance of the New Deal order that both parties had, certainly in the 50s, and then I also think into the 60s. I think it's really more after the Great Society that you see the the kind of broad policy consensus fall apart. So that has led to more ideological parties, which I don't think in itself is a bad thing. I do think, though, that the parties are, in many respects, dominated or have become dominated by ideological diehards, for lack of a better word. I always wanna call them ideological extremists. I don't think their views are extreme. I do think though, to, to your point where, you know, you said like self-interest being fused with ideology. I, I, I think that there, there is a, an ideological rigidity that exists now that i think is relatively new um i think i'm not sure where that's come from it's not a uniform phenomenon within the united states i think it really has been more the problem has been in the broadly defined group of political activists on both sides the people who can contribute small dollar donations to campaigns people who watch watch the news who are sort of avid consumers of news, the people who are most likely to engage in political content on, say, Facebook or social media. I've noticed, even in the course of my adult lifetime, so I'm 43, I graduated from college in 2001. So since, since I graduated from, from college, I have noticed that the, the, the politically engaged people in the country have become very rigid in their ideology such that, to your point, that it's become indistinguishable from their self-interest, so that their ideas or their principles become the end in themselves, rather than means to achieve some stated end. And I think that has had a deleterious effect on our politics in the sense that it doesn't promote compromise or the search for common ground. Now, admittedly, there are going to be areas where there's just no common ground to be had. Right. There's just no common ground to be had in some areas. And we have to continue to debate, and fight, wait, and see if we can discover common ground through the course of elections or new policy proposals, or maybe there's changes in, you know, the political economy of the country such that old debates just become outdated. I think it's more of like we can't even agree to compromise on areas where we already agree, because doing so might give the opposition a political advantage i mean i think a good example of that would be like criminal justice reform i think there are areas in which the left and the right could actually come together on that but they don't they won't do it because neither side wants to give the other any kind of opening another one is probably gun control would probably be another one um i would say even the infrastructure bill that we saw there you know the infrastructure bill was remarkable to see that thing like here is something that was broadly popular with the country and both parties could live with at least portions of it. And rather than just pass the bill, they held it hostage for as long as they could for the more ideologically polarizing part of the democratic agenda. Think of politics as the way in which compromises are made, consensus is reached, justice is broadly secured. I mean, that kind of attitude about politics is kind of a zero sum game and like almost a kind of a holy war. That is incompatible with politics's search for compromise, and and I think a Madisonian vision of politics.
0: And a concluding thought, based upon your diagnosis of those political problems, if Madison were to come back today, spring up from the dead, get this problem of political ideology becoming an end in itself. Is he advocating for a change in how politics are conducted or do you think he's advocating for tweaks in the constitutional structure that he helped put into place during his time of the American founding?
1: So that's a great question, Matthew. Um, I'm hesitant to you know speak for James Madison, obviously. Uh, maybe I, I would sort of adjust the phrasing of the question a little bit. It's, so I've spent a lot of time, you know more or less the last five years, researching James Madison in one way or another, studying him, written, I've written out two books about him. I would consider myself a Madisonian. So I think my answer to the question would be not so much to look at changes to the constitutional structure, but changes in our understanding of what it means to be a citizen in the American Republic. I think too much of our politics is dominated By people who think compromise is a bad thing under any circumstances. And I think that this is a wrong way to engage in politics. I think it's wrong in a couple senses. It's wrong in a narrow sense that our constitutional system is not going to enable narrow majorities to do uh, very much. So if you have a narrow majority and you're expecting to get a lot done, you need to be prepared to be disappointed, which I think is what we're seeing today. But I think more broadly though, and I think this is the important point, is that Madison, to go back to an earlier point I made, Madison understood or believed, and I think he was right about this, that the way you engender a loyalty to the country and loyalty to the government is if the whole country believes that the government will treat them fairly. That, I think, suggests that let's say we change our governmental structure such that 51% of the country can do whatever it wants to 49%. I guarantee you that sooner or later the minority faction within the country is just going to leave. You know the bonds of union are not going to be remain in perpetuity just because they are. They have to be secured and maintained. They have to be replenished and 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 reinvigorated. And if people consistently expect to be mistreated by their government they're going to leave. So what that means in turn is that rather than thinking about oh well you know we have we have we have 50 votes in the senate we have 221 in the house we should be able to do whatever we want no what you should be trying to do is forge a broader coalition a broad coalition that is the way That you not only engender policy reforms, but broad coalitions mean more people walk away satisfied from the political process. More people are going to have faith in the political process and more people are going to have faith in the United States of America itself, and I think that this is something that Madison understood about how politics can actually be a good thing when it's about forging compromises and not when we treat it like it's a religion. You know, politics is not supposed to be our religion in this country, religion is. But we just have such a large and growing factions on both sides of the political aisle who seem to think that this is about, like they're in the middle of a holy war. And I don't like, frankly, I don't want those people making the decisions. Like, I'm glad we have the constitutional safeguards we have to keep those people from having total control of the government. I don't want ideological zealots in charge. So I, if I could change anything, I would encourage people to just stop being so zealous about your politics and understand politics, not as you know, a religious crusade, but a venue in which we can find common ground.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Koss. Some very interesting discussion on what I think to be perhaps the hopeful depoliticization of some aspects of our politics uh, as we think about our constitutional structure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, please make sure to give us a rating and to subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in the show's notes. Lastly, make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming programs for students.